Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dream. These are distressing times in the USA politically for many of us. As Bernie Sanders so powerfully pointed out, there has been a decades-long growth in the gap between the rich and the poor, and the middle class is being exterminated. And it seems that political forces, unchained by the Citizens United decision, are speeding up the march over the cliff. Today's Spirit in Action guest has looked deeply into the mechanics of that forced march, and Gordon Lafer lays it all out candidly and cogently in his book, The 1% Solution, How Corporations Are Remaking America One State at a Time. Gordon brings to light the full scope of the effort and what kind of work we need to invest in to reverse the tide. He brings piercing intellect and clear, convincing communication to his work, and what's more, spiritual strength and clarity. After all, along the way, he spent some time in a yeshiva, a Jewish seminary, though his path eventually took him to his current work with the University of Oregon as Associate Professor at the Labor Education and Research Center. Gordon Lafer joins us by phone from Eugene, Oregon. Gordon, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thanks for inviting me. It's good to be here. I consider myself pretty politically aware, and yet your book has really enlightened me so much with all this dark news. (laughs) How distressing was it for you to do the research for and write this book? You know, I was angry a lot of the time, but I also... You know, when I started writing the book, I thought I was already a 10 on the cynicism scale. And then I discovered things that surprised even me. You know, it was kind of galling to read a lot of these things. And I think it's a harder book to read than to write because it's a lot of very daunting kind of bleak things. And I don't think everything is hopeless. And I feel like it's important for us to go into the future with eyes open about what's really going on. But there's a lot of bleak things in the book. Yeah, and bleak, I think, is a fair way to say it. And again, I've been very aware of them. You cite Wisconsin frequently amongst the lists of states which have been under attack, shall we say, by corporations remaking the laws, as you point out on so many levels. Wisconsin is kind of ground zero, I'm afraid, for it. Is there anything, by the way, that Wisconsin hasn't been attacked with that other states have been attacked on? You know, the education system, the worker rights in terms of sick pay. I mean, is there anything that Wisconsin hasn't been hit with that all these other states have been inundated with? There is, which is, unfortunately, I guess that means if you wanted to know, has everything bad that could happen already happened to us, or could there be more to come? 
you know, there are states that cut unemployment insurance more drastically than Wisconsin. There are states that have made it illegal for cities or counties to have ordinances that ban discrimination based on gender, orientation, or identity. There are states that now require that every high school kid has to take an online class as a condition of graduating. Wisconsin is one of the places that has been really at the epicenter of corporate legislative agenda, but it's very, you know, they have unlimited money, the corporation, so they have a very broad, very ambitious agenda, and it keeps growing because when you have unlimited cash behind you, you can be very ambitious. The other thing that their money has bought for them is really good organization. One of the things you point out, and Alec is at the top of the problem list, I'd say, for each person you talk about, you mention this law came and this person was affiliated in this way with Alec. Explain what Alec is so that people start on the same page. So, you know, the most powerful political actors in American politics, and certainly in the States, are the big corporate lobbies. At the state level, that work is coordinated, most importantly, through the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. What ALEC is primarily is an organization that has several hundred of the biggest corporations in the country and in the world that are behind it. There are a lot of companies that we all know and probably have all shopped with, Ford and General Motors, GE, Amazon, Facebook, the drug companies, hospital companies, McDonald's, Coca-Cola. And the way it works is that a quarter of all state legislators in the country are members of ALEC. They just pay 50 bucks a year in dues. The rest of the expenses are all paid by these corporations. They meet several times a year in nice resorts where they sit in committees that are made up half of elected state legislators and half of corporate lobbyists. And they write bills together about different subjects. Those bills all have to be approved by a corporate board. And then they get introduced in cookie-cutter fashion in state after state across the country. And then the same corporations that write the bills fund those politicians' campaigns, fund things like the Wisconsin Policy Research Institute and the other state-level think tanks that produce experts and write white papers and put up their own advertisements on radio, TV, and the Internet. So it's a very well-funded, very well-coordinated 50-state campaign that has nationalized state politics and is trying to remake the economy at the level of state legislature. But who's behind it? And this is part of the point of the book is I think, you know, when people think about politics, we're transfixed by the personalities, you know, all the drama of Donald Trump or the drama of Scott Walker. And we really, to really get what's going on in American politics, you have to look behind the personalities, behind the parties even, to understand what really is happening, what's really the force that is primarily driving laws. And it's not parties or individuals, it's these national corporate lobbies. So they are the force, they're half of the people sitting there for ALEC. And you say it has to be approved by the boards? Do they run democratically? I mean, I'm not assuming all corporations think exactly alike. No, it has to be approved by a board that has all corporations as members on it. Not all corporations think exactly alike, and there have certainly been disagreements between corporations. You know, recently there have been disagreements about the import-export bank, there are some disagreements about if NAFTA should be renegotiated or not. But overwhelmingly, on the agenda that ALEC is about, which is cutting wages, cutting labor rights, both for union and non-union workers, reducing the scope of democracy, meaning reducing the scope of things that people are allowed to vote on that have to do with the economy, creating more tax cuts for the rich and cutting public services for everybody else, there's been no disagreement among these corporations. There's very widespread agreement on that program between ALEC, the Chamber of Commerce, the Association of Manufacturers, 
which in Wisconsin are joined together in Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, and all of these member corporations are on board with that agenda. I recall in the news a few years back, I th- things were exposed that Alec behind a number of proposals that were seen as odious. And my recollection is that several or maybe a number of corporations pulled out of Alec at that time. I think Microsoft was one of them. Do you recall that event? And is that still true? Or was this a temporary feint or something? So there are quite a number of corporations that have pulled out of ALEC, uh, maybe 50, something like that, really an impressive number. But there are a few reasons to not make more of that than it is. First, there was a set of corporations that pulled out after Trayvon Martin was killed because the stand-your-ground law that was the defense of his murderer was an ALEC product at the behest of the NRA of gun manufacturers. Then there were companies that pulled out over climate change, over ALEC's stance on climate change. So it's significant, but there has never been a company that has left ALEC over the minimum wage or the right to paid sick leave or the attack on unions or privatizing public services. And because there are so many vehicles through which companies can give money secretly since Citizens United, we have to assume that the same corporations are still funding this agenda. They're just doing it in a way that doesn't open them up to a boycott. So for instance, Companies may have pulled out of ALEC, but they're still members of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is a member of ALEC. So if they give money to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, it can promote the same laws and accomplish the same agenda without their fingerprints on it. It's mostly been companies who are afraid of boycotts to their public reputation, which I think is important to pay attention to when normal people think about how might we ever have power to control the behavior of these corporations. But I think we should assume that this agenda is still being funded by those companies. You know, I saw this several times throughout the book, and again, folks, we're speaking with Gordon Lafer, who is author of The 1% Solution, How Corporations Are Remaking America One State at a Time. In some of the chapters, Gordon, you point out legislation supported by ALEC, which doesn't seem to be corporate legislation, if you will, and you just referenced the Stand Your Ground law from Florida, What has Stand Your Ground got to do with corporations? Why would they even be supporting something like that? Why is ALEC involved in that? So I think Stand Your Ground was pushed primarily by the National Rifle Association, which is a major player in ALEC. And, you know, the NRA itself obviously has millions of members who have their personal ideology, but at times the organization goes against even what a majority of its members want because the organization is really driven not by the millions of rank-and-file members, but by the gun manufacturers. And they want to pass any law that will increase the sales of guns, and they believe that Stand Your Ground was one such law. Well, that's pitiful to see, which I could see why that would then drive some other folks from that association. So does ALEC work by majority rule, uh, that kind of democracy? Or I have to admit that I'm kind of sheltered from much of society and that I'm a Quaker, and we always decide things in unity. ALEC doesn't do something like that, does it? Or can they blackball legislation? You know, I'm not. Uh, we don't know exactly how their internal decision-making process works. I know that it's not a democracy, and it's certainly not that the legislators you know, can vote to do something that the corporate partners don't want to do, because, of course, this is not only about writing bills. This is a place for relationships to be built between corporations and legislators. When they spend three days sitting at a resort someplace, they're building relationships, and not just personal relationships, but relationships of money. 
when you look at the different levels of government, let's say city, state, and federal government, the corporate lobby's power is greatest at the state level. That's partly because almost nobody is paying attention to state politics. I mean, less than a quarter of Americans can even name who their state legislator is. And one of the things that that means is that money goes farther in state politics than in federal politics, not just because the races are cheaper because they're smaller races, but because nobody really knows anything about state politics or even knows who's running, usually $50,000, $100,000 can sway a state legislative race, sometimes much less. That also means that in the relationships that are formed between corporate lobbyists and the politicians, if a politician says, you know what, I hear what you're saying, but I just disagree, I'm going to go against you, that often can mean, okay, we're going to pull our money from you and we're going to give it to an opponent, and this decision means this is going to be your last term in office. And those threats are very effective at the state level, and we have evidence of them being made on some very consequential decisions. But, you know, it's very important to understand, again, to not think that this is some cultural shift or this is just the Tea Party or something like that. Two months after the Citizens United decision, which was January of 2010, when the Supreme Court said corporations can now spend unlimited money on politics, a bunch of new organizations were created for the sole purpose of fundraising from corporations to take advantage of this new law. One of them was something that was built mostly with the Chamber of Commerce called Project Red Map that they called Redistricting Majority Project. And it aimed specifically at taking over states in the 2010 elections. In those elections, with this new money, 11 states went from being either divided, like mixed Republican-Democrat or Democratic-controlled, to all Republican, both houses of the legislature and the governor's office, including Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, And that was largely because of that money. So, you know, when we see that, and you can see now also the power of the state legislatures, this is true in Wisconsin and it's true in North Carolina, states that in presidential elections are toss-ups, you know, or like purple states, you don't know which way Wisconsin's going to go. But in the state legislature, our very strong majority hard right is the difference between the way the state government is and the way the public votes in a national election is one of the places that you see the power of of corporate money in state legislatures, that in all these states, the state legislature is far, far, far to the right of where the population is as it shows up in public opinion polls, but also in votes for president. There's some pretty brilliant people involved in this process who are saying, well, if we can't hit it head on, how about if we hit it from this side or that side? Or we'll hit this issue over there, which will have that effect on it. So let's start, I guess, with what you start with, the public unions, the ones that were attacked. Uh, We had all the demonstrations here. People came out, 50 or 100,000 strong, marching around the Capitol here in Wisconsin, in Madison saying, no, you can't do this, Scott Walker, and they went right ahead and did it. Talk about those initiatives, how they've played out, not only in Wisconsin, but all these other states. And we've got listeners in Oregon and Oklahoma and Washington State and California and Massachusetts and everywhere else. So what did they actually aim to do and why did they do it? I think the first thing that's important to know is that in every state where something like this happened, people naturally thought that the idea came from some local politician and that it was in response to conditions, you know, the particular challenges that their state faced. In Wisconsin, I know a lot of the protests were organized around Scott Walker and how terrible Scott Walker is. But the basically doing away with union rights for public employees in Wisconsin, which sparked all those protests, did not come out of the head of Scott Walker. 
the president of Americans for Prosperity, which is the Koch brothers' vehicle for state politics, visited Walker before the bill was introduced and said, we want to provoke a showdown with public employees, not just in Wisconsin, but in a bunch of states. This is something that the corporate lobbies had wanted to do for a long time. And that, you know, in the five years following Citizens United, bills like that, that took away union rights from public employees at different levels, were passed in 15 states. So the first thing to know is that I'm not saying Scott Walker is good or bad, but that we need to look behind that. The second thing is, in Wisconsin and elsewhere, when public employees are attacked, the people doing the attacking, both the corporate lobbies and the politicians, say, we're doing this on behalf of hardworking non-union taxpayers in the private sector who are being bled dry by the Cadillac pensions of fat and lazy university professors like me and other public employees. But then you look and say, well, okay, what did they actually do for hardworking non-union employees in the private sector? There's a couple ways to look at this. One is, what do they actually do with the money that they took away from public employees' paychecks and pensions and health insurance? In Wisconsin, they gave out $2 billion in tax cuts in the years following this that were paid for by layoffs or wage and benefit cuts of public employees. The vast majority of that went to people at the top of the economy. Half of it went to the richest 20% in Wisconsin, and the bottom 60% got only a quarter of the money. So this was not taking from the haves and giving to the have-nots. It was not taking the money to direct it towards people who were struggling in Wisconsin or elsewhere. It was taking from street pavers and custodians and teachers and cops and giving to the privileged and elite. But the second thing is that there was a real like playing of one side against the other. If you're the richest people in the country, you're the corporate elite, and your fear is, you know, there's lots more regular people than there are people like you, and one of the strategies is to turn people against each other. When they attacked public employees, this was true in Wisconsin, but other places too, they said, this is not about private sector unions. They're our partners in economic development. But as soon as they had knocked away public sector unions, they passed so-called right-to-work laws that are designed to eviscerate private sector unions. And then they said, oh, but this isn't about the construction workers. We like them. And when they were done with right-to-work, they passed laws lowering wages in the construction industry. And then in many places, like in Wisconsin, did away with the right to paid sick leave, Wisconsin did away with the legal right to one day's rest in seven. Many states lowered the minimum wage. So we saw a series of attacks against non-union workers. Part of it is to understand that if you feel like, oh, this is only about public employees or it's only about unionized employees or it's only about immigrants, it means you're being played for a fool because this is an attempt to remake the whole economy, including everybody. This is not done on behalf of hardworking people in some group or another. One of the arguments that's most frequently brought up that I heard repeatedly in Wisconsin, and it was the reason we had to pass these laws, is to make our state competitive in terms of drawing businesses, corporations. I recall a study you cite in there where you actually studied the amount of companies coming in before and after legislations passed and right on the borders with other states, too. Could you summarize how that contradicts the reason they're doing this for us? Sure. I mean, this is particularly true of things like right to work or lower minimum wage, where they basically say if we make unions weak and keep wages low in Wisconsin or any other state, then that state will be more attractive to manufacturers who are deciding where they want to locate. But they play one state against each other. So first they went to Indiana and they said, hey, if you, you know, undermine private sector unions with a right to work law, you'll drive down wages and companies will come to Indiana and you'll be a magnet for jobs because you'll be the only state in the industrial Midwest with a right to work law. As soon as Indiana passed its law, they came to Wisconsin and Michigan and said, hey, you guys should be worried because Indiana's going to steal all your jobs unless you pass a, a law like them. 
The final straw is that these same lobbies are pushing right now to pass a federal right-to-work law. So if there's a federal right-to-work law, it will mean that no state will have a competitive advantage over any other state, that wages will be lower in every state. You know, nobody will be drawing manufacturers from one place to another. I think when you see that, you can see, okay, what is the real agenda here? It's not about Wisconsin versus Indiana versus Arizona versus North Carolina. It's just about wanting to drive down wages and to take away the potential for workers to get together and negotiate with their employers through a union. On average, across the United States, if you look at two people who work in the same occupation, same industry, same age, same education, and one has a union and one doesn't, the person with the union makes about 15% more in wages and has a 20 to 25% better chance of getting health insurance or pension through their job. We're in a long-term crisis in America where wages and benefits for normal working people have been falling gradually but steadily since the late 1970s. One of the central reasons for increasing economic hardship is so many fewer people have unions. The heyday of the American economy was from the end of World War II until about 1980. And during that time, everybody grew. The rich got richer, but so did everybody else. And when productivity went up, and productivity means people either are working harder, working smarter, have better education or better technology, corporate profits went up, executive salaries went up, but so did the wages and benefits of the people doing the work that produced that profit. Since then, in the last 40 years, we've basically had a breakdown in the relationship between hard work and fair pay. So we have productivity keeps going up. People are working harder than ever. Corporate profits go up. People at the top and executives are making out like gangbusters, but normal workers' wages are flat or declining. And that's in large part because so many people don't have unions. Corporations are not charities. What they're supposed to do by law is maximize the profit of their shareholders, and one of the ways you do that is by paying people who do the work as little as you can get away with, you know, while still having being able to attract enough people to do the work. And so the absence of unions has been one of the major things that has collapsed the middle class or the ability for people to work their way into the middle class. But the second thing is that when unions are under attack now, including public employees, It's pitched to non-union workers often as out of resentment, right? Who are these people that think they deserve health insurance with such small co-pays? Or who are these people who think they deserve pensions? But what actually happens is that where union employers or public employers are one of the big employers in a local economy, it helps raise standards for everybody. And I can give you an example from the town I live in. I live in Eugene, Oregon. It's a town of about 200,000 people. The biggest employer in town is the University of Oregon. So secretaries at the university have health insurance because they have a union. That increases pressure on non-union private sector employers in the local labor market to provide health insurance for their administrative staff or else know that the best people are going to go work for the university when they have a chance. It's not a conspiracy. It's just the normal working of a competitive labor market. So the result is also true. When unions get knocked down and public employees get knocked down, it decreases the pressure on private sector employers because now they don't have to meet that standard anymore. And that's why what you see when a bill like Right to Work gets passed, what the statistics show is that it results in lower wages both for unions and non-union workers. And the non-union workers, usually nobody connects those dots, but it happens over time and there's no question that you take away a higher labor standard and everybody else ends up making less as well. It's pretty atrocious what we see, Gordon. There is one graph that just grabbed me. It just grabbed me by the gut, I'm afraid. It was on page 94 of The 1% Solution, How Corporations Are Remaking America One State at a Time by Gordon Lafer. 
the graph shows uh, it represents the middle class share of income versus or right next to union membership rate. And that's the one that made it so powerful for me. Tell me what this graph shows and where the data comes from. What it does show is that the decline in union membership and the decline in the share of all income in America that goes to the middle class, which here is defined as the middle 60% of people, of households in the country, have fallen in step. You know, they're, at diff- they're not at the same percentage rate, but every year when one goes down, the other one goes down too. And again, folks, let's say that very clearly. The union membership rate, which was at its peak in the 1950s, as that's gone down in parallel lockstep with it, the middle class share of income has gone down. So is that paramount, I think, Gordon, to saying that unionization has been the great boon to the middle class and the lack of it is helping to bleed away our middle class? Absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, there are other things as well. I mean, things like NAFTA and foreign trade and technology. Unions aren't the only thing, but they're one of the major things. Folks, we are speaking with Gordon Lafer, author of The 1% Solution. I'll say more about that in a moment, but this is Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. On the web, find us at nordenspiritradio.org with all the links and other information about our guests. You want to track down Gordon and his other books, and one of his other books is The Job Training Charade. Also on that site, you'll find a place to post comments. There's a donate button. This is full-time work, and it's only supported by your money, not by donations from either corporations or from government. And that makes a big difference in terms of what influences us. Also, I want you to support your local community radio station. This is paramount. It's so totally crucial. Your local community radio station and other media give you an opportunity to have a local voice that otherwise gets drowned out by the big money. So please start by supporting them. Gordon Lafer is the person we're speaking with. He's over in University of Oregon in Eugene. He's an associate professor at the Labor Education and Research Center of the University of Oregon. And I want to ask you a little bit about what that means, Gordon, by the way, because I think it's so very important. People don't really consider the source. And if someone is being paid by one side or the other to make their case, you have to take it with a grain of salt. So you're part of this Labor Education and Research Center. What is that? And I'd like you to just let the listeners know why we should listen to your words as opposed to those who are being promulgated by Alec. I think it's really important, and I think it's one of the reasons why it's important to have tenured professors. You know, there's a lot of smart people in a lot of places, but if you work for ALEC and you look at the facts and you become convinced that actually it would be good for corporations to pay more taxes or for the minimum wage to be higher, you'll be fired because you're not free to have your own opinion and you're not free to follow the truth wherever the facts may lead you. You're paid to advocate a very particular position. I'm a professor at the University of Oregon. I make no money from publishing things. I'm paid one salary, which is by the taxpayers of Oregon, and I cannot be fired for what my opinion is or for what I become convinced about the facts. The one thing I could be fired for is if I cook the numbers. You know, The standard that academics are held to is that everything you publish has to be reviewed by other peers who are not checking it for your opinion, but who are checking it for your methodology to make sure that the statistics are rigorous and the facts are documented. So 
you know, people can agree or disagree with what I say, but I think it's very important at a time when there's so much spin and so much dissembling and, you know, the Polluters Association is always called Citizens for a Green Economy and that kind of thing, that there are some places you could agree or disagree, but you know I'm not being paid for my opinion. The only thing I'm being paid for is being methodologically serious. There is another layer, which is it depends on the bubble that you live in. And some of us live in big city bubbles or in country bubbles. If you have farmers next door, you're more likely to be in conversation with them and see things from their point of view. What's the bubble that you live in and how do you compensate for bubbleness in your opinions? Well, let me say, first of all, the, the Labor Education Research Center at University of Oregon, like other labor centers, is a department that exists to bring the expertise of the university out to workers around the state, union or non-union. Most of the classes that we teach are not to college students, but are like night and weekend non-credit classes for very little money to workers around the state. That also means, like from my point of view, that I get to meet with people and learn, okay, what does a paper worker do? How do you make paper? What is it like to work in a supermarket? What is it like to be a hospital nurse? What is it like to pick vegetables in the field? What is it like to work in a sawmill? I find all of that stuff very interesting and also very educational to learn from other people about what their actual work lives are like. There's also, you know, within the labor movement, like other places, the labor movement is not a vanguard organization. People don't become union members because they have some political opinion. They usually just get a job someplace that has a union. So there's certainly a very wide range of political opinions in Oregon. I think most unions estimate that 30 or 40 percent of their members normally vote Republican. And the union has to create an organization that can bring all of those people together, which obviously can be challenging and factions and fights and all kinds of things like that. But I think it's in terms of not being in a bubble where you only talk to people who think one thing, I think it's helpful. What about the people who are not part of your bubble, which I would call maybe the high finance? You, you might refer to them as the top 1% or top 10%. I might call them the money changers. They're the ones who are selling out anybody and everything as long as they make a profit. Now, that's obviously a very negative characterization, but a lot of those people, I'm sure, just say the business of America is business, right? I mean, it's what makes the nation tick. Are those part of your circle as well, Gordon? For the most part, no. I mean, not that I wouldn't talk to somebody like that, but I guess the thing that I think very strongly and that I think comes through in this book is I think what is most important about understanding about things like high finance is not to listen to what they say, but to look at what they do. And I also think of, you think, okay, what are we going to do with what they do if we think they're doing something that's wrong, that's harmful to society? One direction is to think we need to meet those people one-on-one -on -one and engage them in conversation and try to open their heart and change the way they see the rest of the world. I'm not optimistic about that. I think what we need to do is to have a very clear-eyed understanding of the direction that they're going in, assume that they're not going to change because of a change of the heart, and that we on the other side, which is almost everybody else, have to figure out a way to amass enough power to make society move in a more humane direction. So I don't feel so compelled to say, okay, what exactly do they think? Because I don't think that the secret to making things better is by finding the way to convince the people at the very top of the economy to act in a more humane way. I think there are better ways to do it. One of the things that strikes me as self-defeating, though, for corporations, if there's something that's going to make a business thrive and startups and all of this thrive, it's going to be because they have customers. And when you cut wages for almost everybody except the top couple percent, you're limiting your customer base. 
Doesn't that ever come up as part of these discussions that they're in fact being self-defeating? So this is one of the places that you see a real divide between the interests of small business and the biggest business. What you just said is absolutely true for small business. I mean, most small businesses are not deciding, would I rather be in Wisconsin or Arizona or China or Vietnam or something? They're rooted in their local community. And just like you said, they depend above all on people having income in their pocket to buy clothes or food or rent apartments or whatever. But when we look at the biggest corporations, and these are the corporations that are the most powerful actors in our politics, one of the things that's scary is that a thing that is new about the time that we're living in is the degree of globalization. So you take, for instance, the case of General Motors. In 1953, the president of GM said at the Senate, oh, what's good for GM is good for the country. And I don't know that that was ever exactly true. But it was more true at that time because at that time, GM cars were made by Americans and were bought by Americans. Right now, a majority of GM's employees and two-thirds of the cars that it sells are overseas. It sells more cars just in China than it does in the United States. And things like that are true of a number of companies that are very big players in the Chamber of Commerce and ALEC and in these other lobbies, which means we have our politics being driven by companies for whom the fortunes of normal Americans, either as workers or as consumers, is less important than it's ever been in the past. It's not completely unimportant, but there's a divorce between the direction their interests are going in and the directions of society. So you hear people saying just what you said, even why are they cutting education? Don't they know they need people to be educated to be their workers in the future? And I think that the biggest corporations have figured out, you know, we need some people from America, but we don't need everybody to be educated. And a lot of our production will go to China or Russia or wherever we'll go. So it's a dangerous thing in politics. And if you think like foreign corporations are not allowed to donate to American political campaigns, but an American corporation, a legally American corporation, even if 80% of its business is overseas, is allowed to give as much money as it wants. But its interests are not the same as the interests of the people who live in the place that those politicians are supposed to represent. And I think when you look at the paradox that you raised, isn't this really against their self-interest? The scary thing is to realize for a lot of them, no, their self-interest has just taken a different path than the self-interest of the people voting in the election. Which really seems contradictory in terms of why you were working at the state level on this. I mean, again, you know, if you were talking nationally and you're advocating for NAFTA or the Trans-Pacific Partnership or, or any of these other agreements which are going to make it easier for businesses to work internationally, then maybe some of this is comprehensible. But at the state level in Wisconsin, why would Scott Walker and the other folks who are controlling our legislature here, why would they be doing things that are going to work against the well-being of the people they represent? Of course, I'm just a little too idealistic. I'm thinking that they're representing the people who theoretically elect them as opposed to the people who pay for those elections. Just call me a foolish idealist, I guess. Well, you know, I feel like you're asking me questions where I'm going to end up driving your listeners to drink. But I think it's very important to look behind the politicians to the money behind them. And sometimes it plays out in very crude ways. So, for instance, when Michigan passed its right to work law in 2012, the Senate majority leader was a moderate Republican, a pro-labor Republican who was opposed to right to work. And he got taken into a small room with big money donors and essentially was told, you know, if you don't do what we're telling you, this is going to be your last term in office because we'll pull our money from you and fund an opponent in the primary. So the important question is not why doesn't Scott Walker have a heart or doesn't somebody else have a heart? Why would they want to do this? But to focus on the right place, like where is this really coming from? 
And then the question is, why would these big companies decide to do this? And that's not an ideological question. Every company that's in ALEC at some point had a meeting of its government affairs committee or executive committee or something, and they made what they thought was a rational decision for the interests of their corporation to put time, money, and energy into pushing forward the ALEC agenda. And some of that is gutting public services, partly to fund more tax cuts for corporations and the rich, and I think also partly to get the rest of us used to lowering our expectations. And I've written about this in the book that I think the big political problem for people at the top, for the corporate elite, is they know that on an issue-by-issue basis, their agenda is unpopular. And the question for them is, how can they push legislation that is going to make things yet more unequal and make life yet harder for the majority of people in the country without provoking a backlash? One way of doing that is to get all of us to ratchet down what we think we have a right to demand, either from the government as citizens or from our jobs as employees. So if I come to feel like, okay, I don't have real health insurance, I only have catastrophic health insurance, but at least I have that, and so far I'm not sick. Or, you know, my kid is in a class with 35 kids and all the librarians got fired, but at least it's not 45 kids. The more we do that, we kind of normalize downward mobility and make the politics safer for them. And some of cutting public services, I think, is trying to erase from our own consciousness the idea that just by dint of being citizens, We should have a right for our kids to be educated in decent schools. We should have a right to be able to get to work on affordable mass transit. We should have a right to have public libraries. You know, those kind of things. That's part of the privatization agenda. I really feel like I'm not doing justice in terms of bringing out some of the major structure of the 1% solution because part of what was transformative for me in reading this book, Gordon, was to understand the layers upon layers upon layers. And I'm wondering if we can grasp a few of those threads so people get a better idea of why reading this book is really going to open their eyes to how things work. So, for instance, it was easy for me here in Wisconsin to focus on the destruction, the attempts to destroy the public unions, and then on right to work. Those are just two layers of how you get rid of the power of unions which then get rid of the power of the workers. But those were only the top couple layers of the onion that we're peeling back. It's making us cry so much. Could you mention a couple of the other layers so that people have an idea of why you don't stop after chapters one, two, and three in this book. You keep going and you get a full picture of how serious the situation is. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, part of what's so daunting is that everybody is bored to death by state politics and nobody pays attention until you run into one of these things in your personal life. And there are so many areas that you could run into it. So to give some examples, as you said, there is a bill in Maine that said when you go into a restaurant with a big group and they say you have an automatic 15% service charge if you're eight people or more or something like that, they said service charges now belong to management instead of the waiters and waitresses. And the restaurant doesn't need to tell the customers that. So if you go in with a group, you pay your service charge, you figure that's the tip, you don't leave anything else on the table. This is a straight transfer of money out of the pockets of waiters and waitresses to the owners or investors in restaurants just done by the political power in the state legislature. If we look at wage theft, wage theft is just people who are not paid what everybody agrees they were legally entitled to, which usually means you're not paid minimum wage, you're not paid overtime, or in some cases you're just not paid. It's not unusual for people working in restaurants or working on construction to just never get their last paycheck. 
you can't really go to court to enforce it for the most part because if $500 was stolen out of your paycheck, it could cost you more than that just to retain a lawyer. And there is an epidemic of wage theft. There's far more money stolen out of American workers' paychecks than the total amount of money stolen in all of the bank robberies, 7-Eleven robberies, and gas station robberies in the country. But there's almost nobody policing it. So a few cities and counties started developing things that work kind of like small claims court. They're very quick, they're very streamlined, and they started recovering millions and millions of dollars in stolen wages. And in response, the Chamber of Commerce, the Restaurant Association, the big corporate lobbies have started going into state legislatures and trying to pass laws that make it illegal for any city or county to have a mechanism to help people collect wage theft. They passed a law like that in Michigan and Tennessee, and they're pushing in other states. Another example is unemployment insurance. Not only have many, many states cut the amount that you get for unemployment insurance, but you know the way unemployment insurance works is two ways. One is it gives you a little bit of money, not much, but a little bit of money to make it through the hard times when you're out of work. But also, by giving you that little bit of money, it lets you hold out a little bit longer and be a little bit choosy about what next job you're going to take. So if I got laid off from a sawmill that pays decently, I don't have to take a McDonald's job the next day. And of course, once you take a next job, it's very, very hard to keep looking for a job because you're working full time. So unemployment insurance lets you spend a little bit longer looking for a job with your skills in the area that you live at a decent wage. So what Tennessee did is they said, you get your unemployment insurance and you can look for a job that paid the same as your old job only for 13 weeks. After that, you need to take any job that pays at least 75% of your old wages or else you get kicked off of unemployment insurance. And then it goes down to 65%. So if there was another recession like the Great Recession in Tennessee, there would be more than 100,000 people who were forced back to work at two-thirds of their old wages, which not only hurts them, but hurts everybody else because all of a sudden you get this cheap, low-wage workforce dumped into the labor market. So these are things like usually nobody can stand to think about it until you need unemployment insurance or until you're a waiter or until you have wages stolen out of your paycheck. And there are many, many different things like this. What the book tries to do is say, let's put all these pieces together and you get a picture of what's really going on and what's the overall direction that the corporate lobbies are trying to push the country. It really has been transformative from my view of the massiveness of this attack on workers' rights. And I'm saying workers, which I mean 80, 90 percent of the population, very small percent of the population, just make their living, if you will, by money that rolls in because they own something. Those folks are a very small percentage of the population, but their interests are the only ones that have been coming into focus in these legislatures, the ones that have turned and ones that were already dominated by ALEC and the Chamber of Commerce and other folks. So I think we need a better vocabulary, for instance, and maybe you can provide me with some of this, Gordon. What name should we be calling right to work by? Right. I mean, right to work is really destroying private sector unions. That's what the bill is about. I don't know what like the snappy bumper sticker is, but that's really what the bill is about. Do you have other ones that you've seen? I mean, names that have been particularly misleading that you would rename or you would characterize more clearly? Well, almost everything is misleading. I mean, the Chamber of Commerce puts out an annual report saying, here are the states that are ranked best for job growth and for economic growth. And they just, you know, they rank high states that have the policies that they like, which is no regulation of companies and very low taxes and no unions. When you actually do the study over time, it turns out the states with the policies that they like have lower growth than the other states. 
But, you know, it's like you could spend your life as an academic refuting arguments from the other side. And some of that is important, but it's also important to try to pull back and just talk common sense about what's really going on and where are they really headed to. In some states, the corporate lobbies will say, we don't want the minimum wage to be indexed to inflation. And you could get into a whole argument about the pros and cons of the minimum wage going up with inflation. But then you see the same lobbies in other states who are just trying to abolish the minimum wage altogether, who are trying to use high school students to substitute for adult labor, who are trying to bring in cheap and exploitable guest workers from other countries. And you say, oh, I understand this whole argument about indexing the minimum wage is not really about that. It's just find any way you can to cut down wages and replace adult American labor with cheaper labor. So I think it's important not to get caught in the tiny details and to be able to see the big picture and really get what's going on. And that's what I've tried to do in the book. What would you say that you stand for? What are the values? What are the principles that you stand for that people should stand up and cheer when we put it out there? Well, I think the principles are the right of people to earn a decent living, the right of people to get their fair share of the profits that their work creates, and then the right of all of us as citizens, even people who are kids or who for some reason can't work, to get a you know minimally decent standard of living and basic services like health care and education. And I guess you know one thing that I would say at the end of a bleak book or a bleak interview, well, I guess two things. One is I have a website which has some interviews on it where maybe in 20 minutes you can get the arguments of the book for people who won't, don't want to read 200 pages, and that's gordonlayford.com. But also the thing that I have found most optimistic and most hopeful grounds for moving forward is that with all the power the corporate lobbies have, the thing they have not succeeded in doing is convincing people that their ideas are good ideas. People vote for candidates for all different kinds of reasons. But when people have a chance to vote on an actual issue, which usually happens through a ballot initiative, there is very broad bipartisan support for having an economy that is fairer. One of the places you saw the difference between voting for candidates and voting on issues was what happened to Wisconsin's anti-union law in 2011 and what happened in Ohio, which the same year passed basically a copycat law. Because the system works differently in Ohio, people in Ohio could vote on repealing that one law and they could vote right away. In Wisconsin, they could only vote on recalling Governor Walker and other politicians. I don't think the populations are that different from Ohio to Wisconsin. In Ohio, they could vote on that law. They did away with the law, and public employees still have union rights there. But even more, you see a, a strong majority of both Democrats and Republicans support a higher minimum wage, support a right of people to some minimum numbers of paid sick leave, support a right to fair scheduling, support having trained certified teachers in classrooms and small class size for students, support a right to affordable health care. And you can see in places like Arizona last November, which is a very conservative state by its politics, Arizona voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton and by a much wider margin voted to raise its minimum wage and create a statewide right to paid sick leave. So several hundred thousand people had to have both voted for Donald Trump and voted for those things. So I think when we have the a possibility to organize around issues and principles rather than around candidates or parties, there's reason to be hopeful that there's very broad bipartisan support for moving in a, towards a, a more just economy. You do point out one of the things that you refer to in the book, Gordon, is, I guess, how weak our democracy is, that it's really the opinions of only the top 10% economically who get to determine what laws get passed. Yes. So there's a, a famous study done by a political scientist named Martin Gillens at Princeton where he looked at what does the population actually think, broken down by people at different income levels, and how do federal politicians, meaning congresspeople and senators, 
act. And what he found is that, for the most part, they only respond to the richest 10% of the country. If there's an issue where the richest 10% of people think one thing and the other 90% disagree and think someplace else, politicians will vote with the richest 10%. The only time that that changes and politicians are a little more responsive to people on the bottom 90% is in presidential election years because so many more people are paying attention to things. This is part of how corporate lobbies get away with so much at the states because almost nobody is paying attention to what happens in state legislatures. But I think there's a more serious danger to our democracy, which is that part of the corporate lobby's response to knowing that their positions are unpopular is to try to use their power in state legislatures to shrink the scope of our democracy and to take more and more economic principles and say, you're not allowed to vote on this anymore. So they've passed laws in states that say no city or county within the state is allowed to raise its minimum wage. Or like in Wisconsin, where they, people who lived in Milwaukee had voted by citizen referendum to create a right to paid sick leave in 2009. Then after the legislature flipped, they abolished that and said no city or county in Wisconsin can vote on having a right to paid sick leave. In Oregon, the city of Portland created a right to paid sick leave. What the corporate lobbies are trying to say is people should not be able to vote on the things that people in Portland were able to vote on. We see these preemption bills, is what they're called, because it preempts the right of local people to say, you can't vote on minimum wage or sick leave, you can't vote on wage theft, you can't vote on the right even to meal and rest breaks on the job, you can't vote on regulating fracking or plastic bags. And you know, when you say, is a society democratic, it's not just, are the elections free and fair, but it's also the question of how much of the scope of life are people able to have democratic control over? If you have a perfect election system, but you're only allowed to vote about the color of the flag, it doesn't get you very much. And what they've been engaged in is an effort to shrink the scope of our democracy because they know that the public is opposed to them. And this, is, I think, is one of the most important places that we have to dig in because there's very strong bipartisan support against doing this, both on the issues and on taking away the right to vote about things. So that's a place where I think the corporate economic agenda has turned into a political agenda, and that political agenda is to make the country less democratic. There's one more aspect I want to bring in here. You comment on it fairly briefly, actually, in the book, Gordon, but I think it's crucial in terms of seeing some light. The presidential election this past year, the big surprises were both how strong Donald Trump was, how strong Bernie was. They were both considered to be outliers, and yet Bernie almost got the Democratic nomination, and Trump did win the Republican nomination and then became president. Both of those folks were populist options, obviously on different trains, but with some overlap actually too. So why is that a hopeful reason or maybe not as I feel it is? I think it's both a sign of hopefulness and a sign of kind of chaos and dangerous time. You know, when you have 40 years of downward mobility, and that's what we have. Now, 60% of American men have seen their real wages go down, which means there's about 70 million American men who are working for less than the equivalent of what their fathers and grandfathers earned. You have decades and decades of economic decline. It produces a lot of anxiety, a lot of rage, a lot of insecurity, and that can go in many directions, and it can go right or left. I think that what we saw in the last election is the end of the dominance of neoliberal politics, where just life has gotten too hard in America for most people to be satisfied voting for somebody who's an investment banker, whether it's somebody like Hillary Clinton or somebody like Mitt Romney, who says, well, we're basically going to keep the same system of the rich getting richer, but we'll be a little nicer over here or a little different over here. 
you know, in both parties, what we saw was support for people who had much more populist positions on the economy. I mean, Donald Trump has not acted that way so much as he's gotten into office, but his rhetoric was more like that, and certainly Bernie Sanders was. So I think it is grounds for optimism and kind of shows you where there's a grounds to start building. But it's also a dangerous time. And I think that the real and even more dangerous time will come in a few years because President Trump essentially campaigned on the promise to provide decently paying jobs for people without college degrees. When it dawns on people that that's not true, as I suspect it will not be true, in two or three or four years, his only move is going to be to double down on whipping up even more white nationalist frenzy. And I think by that time, people who want to move in a more progressive direction need to have figured out how to organize a broader coalition that includes some of the people who voted for Donald Trump because they were opposed to TPP or because they thought that he cared about working people to move in a more progressive direction. I think you're absolutely right about that. Folks, we've been speaking with Gordon Lafer. His book, which came out in early April 2017, is The 1% Solution, How Corporations Are Remaking America One State at a Time. He's Associate Professor at the Labor Education and Research Center at the University of Oregon, Eugene, Oregon. He's also author of Job Training Charade, and his website is gordonlafer.com. Lafer, by the way, is L-A-F-E-R, gordonlafer.com. But you don't have to spell that well as long as you can remember northernspiritradio.org. I have links to all of my guests there. Gordon, it's an incisive book. It's profound, and I really want to encourage people to read it. I feel I'm so much more equipped to deal with what's happening in government here in Wisconsin and what's happening on the national level because I've read this book. There's so many layers. We've only talked about a few of them so far. We haven't even touched really on what's happening with education and how that plays into the scene. It's so important to be aware of this, folks, and then to go out and transform our local governments. And I'm interviewing a couple people, Gordon, both in the past and in the near future, from local governments here, part of the revolution that we're having in Wisconsin from the bottom up. I think it's going to be so crucial. You give us the ammunition to make this change. I appreciate that so much, and I appreciate you taking your time with us here today for Spirit in Action. Thanks very much. It's great to have been here. Again, gordonlafer.com is the site you want to go to. Great book. Check out The 1% Solution, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, 